Welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Young Turks, Countdown, Ring of Fire, and Tom Hartman. I'm hanging out with this family friend, and uh, he's very conservative. He's the same guy who earlier I uh, explained on the show uh, thought his dream ticket, and this was when I was talking to him, not last summer, but the summer before, so a year and a quarter ago, uh, was Dick Cheney and George Allen. Okay, so you get a sense of how conservative he is. Okay, he thinks Dick Cheney would make a great president. George Allen would have made a great vice president. Now, uh, of course, as you all know, George Allen no longer in politics. <laughs> that never gets old. Okay, and Dick Cheney soon to be retired. Now, so I'm talking to him, and I say, "Come on, I gotta ask you. Mm. I mean, I gotta ask you, George Bush." He says, "All right, I give up. Overemployed." <laughs> overemployed. Yeah, overemployed, like above his head. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I was like, thank you. Finally. <laughs> finally. But now, but that's an enormous indication because if that guy buckles and says, that's it, George Bush sucks, which is basically, not basically, almost exactly what he's saying. I mean, you talk to him more. He's like, yeah, he just did I don't know what he's doing. He's above his head. Done. He's bad president. Okay. When you've lost that guy, you've lost everybody. I know. And there's no coming back. I mean, the jury is in, and America will forever think George Bush was an awful president. Okay, that's great, but he'll still vote Republican in OA. Of course he will. Yeah, Not no. only that, he bet me a hundred bucks uh, that the Republicans would would win on OA. My my father's come to the same conclusion about George Bush, and it's it's a little disheartening, sort of, because it takes the wind out of you. And you really have nothing to fight about anymore after that point. There's something fun in fighting politics with somebody else, especially George Bush, because it's so obvious from our end. And then when they finally concede, you're like, now what? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Are you going to vote Democrat for 08? Because you're going to have the same people behind the candidate in 08. So you got that. I mean, that's really going to be the opportunity to make the change. And they're like, nah, no chance. Uh, well, no, look, here's what I do after they concede defeat. First, I strike the Muhammad Ali pose. I stand over him and go like this. <laughs> you know that famous poster of Ali standing over whoever he knocked out? It's probably Sonny Liston. Yeah, that's what I do. And then I gloat a little bit. Quote, unquote, knocked out. And then a couple of swift kicks to the ribs. Well, okay, when you I don't some... think Ali kicked people with the ribs after he knocked him out. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I, but I take it beyond Ali. That's my gravy on top. Mm, ah, okay. <laughs> okay. The, ki- the kicking in the ribs is just gravy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because when you got him down, you beat him. You beat him down further. Okay, because then I move on to, okay, you understand George Bush is awful. Let's get you to understand Dick Cheney's awful. Let's get you to understand the Republican Senate failed you. Let's get you to understand the Republican House failed you. Let's Let's get you to understand the Republican Party is a total uh, sham at this point. Right, let's get you to understand that you can't, this party uh, uh, supported him uh, blindly. And and the reasons you think he's over his head is because of the hideous policy disasters he's engaged in for which he had the, the full faith and support of the Republican Party. So the way you demonstrate your anger to him is say, no, not again, and I'm going to go ahead and vote for John Edwards or Barack Obama or even Hillary Clinton, whoever it is, and then I'll come back if the party figures itself out. But until that party repudiates that leader, George Bush, I don't think you should go around voting for him. You know, well, obviously I don't, but I mean, I think that would be, that's bolder than just saying, yeah, okay, he's over his head, I can't wait to decide, I can't wait to, you know, cast my vote for whoever the nominee is, for Sam Brownback in 2008. And, and, you know, two small uh, indicative things there. What was interesting is, I mean, he's still, the person I was talking about, too, despises Hillary Clinton. Of course. Under Mm. no circumstances ever, ever, ever vote for Hillary Clinton. It's visceral for so many of them. Right. Uh, But he did say, Barack Obama, that's interesting. We could have a conversation. Patience, he won't say it in a year. I, I mean, I wish he would. Uh-huh. I mean, are you certainly a year and a half? No, but that's just slightly indicative. That's interesting. And by the way, the, I've also decided, as I know this is my conclusion, uh, when the cartoonists turn on you, you're done. <laughs> and whether it's right or wrong, when they turn on you and they start putting the cartoons up over you. So John Kerry was done a long, you know, mm-hmm. when the cartoonists turned on him in the middle of the 2004 election. And uh, the reason I bring that up is because I've now seen the cartoonists have turned on John McCain. 
Hmm. Now they're making fun of him, like, oh, what position are you with today? And uh, his position on Iraq and how it's going to destroy his candidacy for 08. And I thought that's an interesting indication. In the House, some 30 Democrats would have to experience health crises before the balance of power there would be threatened. As such, Democrats in that chamber proceeding with the sculpting of their power for next month. The key word for how the incoming leadership is planning to do things differently being oversight. Democrats not only planning to assert more control over the billions of dollars a month being spent on the war in Iraq, incoming Speaker Nancy Pelosi also taking the unusual step of creating a new House Intelligence Committee that would oversee funding for the nation's major spy agencies. The current Congress's complete whitewash of the Foley inquiry this week also raising the bar for new standards about ethics. We're going to subject every decision to the har- every. Um, manifestation of this house to the harshest scrutiny, whether it's the page board, whether it's the ethics process, whether it's smoking in the speaker's lobby, whatever it happens to be, to look at it and, and, and say, we are responsible for this. These decisions have to be those that have a consensus and also uh, will, again, uphold the highest ethical standard. From his perch on the Government Reform Committee, Congressman Henry Waxman has spent the last six years investigating the White House on everything from military contracts to Medicare prices. From his new perch as chairman of that committee, Chairman Waxman was saying that the biggest challenge he is facing is picking and choosing what to probe. Time now to call in our own David Schuster at the MSNBC headquarters in Washington. David, good evening to you. Good evening, Keith. Based on what we've heard from the Democratic leadership today and so far, sounds like exactly the kind of oversight that we have not seen on Capitol Hill for the last four years, maybe the last six Is the White House worried, or should the question be how worried? Well, they should be very worried. I mean, first of all, the dirty little secret in Washington, and it's really not so little, and it's really not a secret, is that the $8 billion a month, for example, that is being spent in Iraq, there is no oversight on that money at all. No oversight as far as the feeding of the troops, the energy, the subcontractors, how much the military really needs, how much is being used for former Iraqi exiles who presumably should be back in Iraq, but some of them are not and are still getting tens of thousands of dollars. All of that is going to be sort of the proverbial worm under the rock uh, that the Democrats are going to turn over. And at a time when the Bush White House is preparing to ask for another $120 billion to pay for the war through September, the Democrats are going to be able to use that opportunity and twist it on the White House. They're not going to hold the money back. But they're going to be very tight and they're going to essentially embarrass the White House as far as how the White House has been spending this money and the lack of any accounting principles to it. In the wake of uh, the Speaker-elect's news conference today about her immediate plans for the new session, are 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 the grumblings coming not from the uh, Republican side but from the Democrats perhaps that the agenda is not ambitious enough, that that these do not meet the the incredibly high expectations of uh, not merely the people who put them there but the people who are going there? Well, there have been some grumblings by Democrats who would still like to go back and revisit how the war was sold to the American people. And there have been some complaints that the Democrats don't appear to be headed in that direction as far as investigations. But strategically, they really don't need to, because you remember that the Scooter Libby trial begins in January. Here's a guy, the vice president's former chief of staff, who's accused of essentially lying about an administration critic who is criticizing how the administration sold the war. That issue is going to be front and center in a Washington federal courthouse. So that's going to be in front of a lot of people, even if the Democrats don't want to look back and look at, well, how was this war sold, the shifting justifications for war. Some of that, some of that is going to come out in this trial anyway. Might it also come out uh, in the areas beyond oversight, with the, specifically in terms of potential for investigations? Uh, do we have any idea 
who might get the first subpoenas, who should be the most worried in that front? Well, actually, the, the people who ought to be the worried the most are the vice presidents of former colleagues over at Halliburton. Henry Waxman has made absolutely no secret that he has been disgusted by how Halliburton has gotten contracts from the government, the lack of oversight, the way that they have charged the military and charged the government for the services that Halliburton has provided, whether it was rebuilding oil refineries and energy lines or serving troops to the uh, serving food to the troops. Uh, Waxman has suggested over and over that Halliburton has done a dirty job with all of this and that he wants to get at Halliburton. He's also suggested that some of the no-bid contracts, never mind those that went to companies that received no-bid contracts for Iraq, that some of the no-bid contracts that went for rebuilding uh, Mississippi and parts of Louisiana because of Hurricane Katrina, he sees major trouble there. So that's where the betting is as far as the early round of subpoenas going. Yeah, for Henry Waxman, it is his trip to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. He is Charlie, and he's got uh, all the subpoenas he can eat. Our own David Absolutely. Schuster. Great. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks, Keith. Take care. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know A change gonna come it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. I don't know what's up there. Joining us now is Representative Barney Frank of Massachusetts, who has served in the House since 1981 and will now become the chairman of the powerful House Financial Services Committee. Barney, thanks so much for joining us on Ring of Fire. I'm glad to, Bobby and Rachel. How are you? I think my brother Joe was on that committee for. Joe and I worked very closely together to try and protect existing affordable housing. And as soon as the Republicans came in office, they repealed that. And we've been losing tens of thousands of units. One of the things I'll be doing is kind of restoring work that he and I did together. You know, one of the things that I love that you're working on is the CEO compensation stuff. And I don't know how, you know, what your strategy is for dealing with it, but I know you've been very outspoken. And very straightforward, and it's very market-oriented. I don't know how the conservatives can object. Let me just give some stats about the sure. CEOs. In 1965, U.S. CEOs at major companies made 24 times, on average, a worker's pay. By 2004, CEOs earned 431 times the average mm. worker. CEOs on average take home 821 times as much as a person working at the minimum wage. With this extraordinary ratio, an average CEO makes more before lunch on his first day of work than a minimum wage worker will make all year. So go ahead, Barney, tell us and what yeah, you're doing about this. Did that. So let me add one this is the banana republic we're turning into. We have looked at it every way you can. There is zero correlation between those salaries and performance. That is. You try and track any correlation between these extraordinary salaries, not just salaries, but bonuses and retirement packages, et cetera, and performance, and they're not there. So my, my solution is a fairly simple one. Let the shareholders decide. The problem has been that the boards of directors and the CEOs have tended in many cases, not they're in all. all in cahoots. They're all Absolutely. in cahoots. And, you know, many of the members of the boards are themselves CEOs. So they have no interest in holding down CEO pay, and the CEOs pick the boards of directors. And in many, many corporations, you know, we have this rule that even if a majority of the shareholders vote against a director, he or she will still be reelected because in many of these cases there's no way to nominate a competing slate. So my bill is really straightforward. I'm going to take all the compensation, including the retirement package and what gets paid in case of a sale of the company, etc., and Subject that to a shareholder vote. If the shareholders who own the company want to do it, okay. And I've worked very closely with some of the large pension funds, and they've become great voices for responsible capitalism. The SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, has helped us in one regard because they are promulgating rules now. One of the problems we've had is you needed 15 accountants and some subpoena power to figure out what they were really getting paid because they hid that. Are there any, like, Republicans who aren't? complete corporate toadies on Capitol Hill who would vote for such a thing? Well, I certainly wouldn't want to call all my colleagues corporate toadies, but uh, <laughs> the, um, the Republicans were uniformly against the last time. But here's the deal. 
now that we are in power, I think it's going to be easier for some of the Republicans to vote their consciences. One of the things that you saw, beginning with Newt Gingrich, and it was perfected by Tom DeLay, the Republicans, they terrorized their own members. And so people who might have agreed with us were afraid to vote that way. Of course, what happened was a lot of them paid a price for it. You know, a lot of these moderate Republicans said, oh, well, I'm not like those right-wingers. I'm a moderate. And our answer was, yes, you, in your heart of hearts, you may be a moderate, but in your vote of votes, you vote with the conservatives. And so what I'm hoping is that the lesson learned from the defeat of some of these moderates who never voted their own consciences, that this might get us a few votes from people now who don't want to go that same way. It's one thing to think about how the uh, Republican members of Congress might be swayed to go along with something like this, with a whole new balance of power in Congress. It's another thing, though, to think about the special interests that you're kind of poking at with an initiative like this. I mean, taking on the super rich, taking on the people who make these tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of dollars compensation packages, that's a big dragon to kind of poke well, at. I, I think it may turn out to be a kind of a paper dragon in some ways. You know, some of the wealthiest people in this society who've really earned it on their own, well, they're not supporting my legislation in some ways. They say, oh, we don't want the government to do it. But they've been very critical. Uh, they've cited the statistics. This is probably did. Warren Buffett, for mm -hmm. instance, has been very critical of these excessive pay packages and doesn't pay himself or his top people anything like that. And he's, of course, the most successful capitalist in America. But I think this is one of the things that we, we were able to prove last month in the election, namely that the American people have had it. Look, here's the problem. The compensation for CEOs doesn't stand out by itself. It's part of a pattern. America has been growing. We have increased our wealth in recent years. But to a degree unprecedented in recent American history, almost all the increased wealth has gone to the people at the very top. And the average worker has found himself or herself worse off in real terms, corrected for inflation, probably less likely to get health care, with a shakier pension plan. And so the country has gotten richer, but it hasn't affected the average American. And the CEO compensation excesses that Bobby documented there just have to be seen as part of that pattern. It can't be good for America, but it also can't be good for corporate America. It also can't be good for business to have such top-heavy compensation I, become the right. standard. You're absolutely right. First place, it gives perverse incentives. That's what I talked about before, where they hit these targets. And then it turns out they only hit the targets because of voodoo accounting in some cases. And this has been a real problem where the top people... People in corporations sometimes are given an incentive to manipulate the books and to take some short-term actions that are not in their long-term interest because that's going to be money in their pocket. Right. Um, there's a broader way in which is the problem. And I've said to the business community, look, I'm an internationalist. I'd like to see foreign trade conducted in the right way. And I think foreign direct investment that follows good rules in America is a good thing. And immigration has been an important thing in America. But we're at a point now where the average American is so angry at the fact that all the wealth is going to a handful of people and he or she bears the burden of the adjustments without getting the benefit that they're saying no to the rest of the world they're saying we don't want any more involvement now i think that can be damaging in the long run but what i've said to the business community is i'm ready to make a deal with you you stop busting unions you stop these corporate excesses you help cooperate with environmental policies and let us do something about health care and in return we will work out ways to go ahead with globalization on fair terms. I don't want to trade with people if they are going to be using what they get from us to degrade their own environments. But I, I think we ought to be able to use our leverage as the greatest market in the history of the world that people want access to and say, look, you want trade with us, you want our capital, then you've got to address global warming as well as the rest of us. Because we're at a point now where the businesses complain that they can't get the right economic policies for growth. But they can't get the right economic policies for growth because the average citizen sees those as harming him rather than helping him. Yesterday's Washington Post, Wednesday's Washington Post, 
uh, has just a fantastic story, and the title says it all. Culture shock on Capitol Hill, guys. House to work five days a week. Oh, oh no. Jill, do you Say know? Is so. Do you know what the previous schedule was under uh, under the good uh, Tom Delay and uh, and uh, John uh, Boehner and uh, Roy Blunt? This is how ignorant I am. I didn't realize Congress didn't work five days a week. <laughs> no, I bet you a lot of people don't know that. I, I mean, for a long time, I didn't know that they didn't I... work five days a week. I thought they were like the rest of us, who could well, color me silly. For some time, they, of course, had. Here's what the schedule was. Uh, they would uh, uh, come to work on, I believe, uh, uh, the legislative week started late Tuesday. <laughs> late Tuesday. Not just Tuesday. And ended Thursday afternoon. <laughs> Man, that's so. That's like that's I'm, like two days. Yeah, they work in a half day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, and a half day Thursday. Now, it's, it's about two days. Isn't that? But doesn't that mean they just have to be in D.C. for those days, and then they go back home to their local offices and work from there? But, <laughs> right, but they work from there. They don't the work at the local offices. I mean, is up to them. They're not elected to work at the local offices. They're elected to serve in Washington. Now. Everybody. Yeah, but they don't. Don't they have to be home in 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 the district so they can hear from the people and? Oh please. Okay, right before the elections, they do a couple of like get-togethers with friendly audiences. They're like, oh, what am I hearing? Oh, look at that. That's my chief of staff telling me that. Well, then I heard it from my audience. Look, they do it from time to time. They do, and there are things that they do from uh, at home. But mainly, what they do from home, two things is raise money, which that is related to your re-election campaign, and I don't give a damn. I didn't elect you to get re-elected. I elected you to do a job, and then the second thing they do at home is sit on their ass. Well, well see, if, if they're always supposed to be in Washington, then why don't they live in Washington? Well, hang on, look, let's get through this. There's, there's, more, there's much more to this. They are supposed to go home, and, a lot, and by the way, many of them hold town meeting after town meeting and go through the district and constantly meet people. They're, most members of Congress are conscientious and busted their ass. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that here's what they didn't have to do under this schedule. Bust their ass at all. The schedule was supposed to be tight so that you know what you don't have? Weekends. Because that's when you hold the town meetings because that's when you're home. Now, here's what we're neglecting to mention. Uh, you know, the Congress is going out of session now, right, on December 10th. They return in January. So they have three weeks off at Christmas. They take the month of August off. They have two weeks in April off. They have weeks off in February, March, and July. There's plenty of time to be home and meet with the constituents. They get off something like 12 weeks a year. See, what you're God, supposed to do is... I worked in Congress. You're supposed to go to Congress to actually try to first consider laws, secondly, to debate laws, and third, finally, to pass laws that help the American people. You see what I'm saying? And that's supposed to be a deliberative process that's supposed to be thoughtful. This. You're supposed to put some time and energy behind it to figure out what's right for my constituents. Yeah, so it's exactly right, Cenk. And, and next year, this is the new House rule. So, again, late Tuesday, Thursday afternoon. That was the congressional work week. Uh, and before you give the new schedule, by the way, that congressional work week led to yeah. working only 103 days out of the year, which is the lowest total... Uh, ever by any Congress. The, the, the famous or the infamous do-nothing Congress of 1948 worked seven days yeah, more. They worked 110 days. Now, um, uh, and by the way, travel obviously harder for them, I might add, as well. Air travel, not as quick. Now, no one would argue that these guys, they, like, I mean, this new, this new tough schedule, they're going to be, they need to be, in, Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer are going to require they be in the Capitol for votes by 6.30 p.m. Monday. So they're they're giving them a break. They're saying to the people on the West Coast, you can get on a plane early Monday morning and you'll be able to get here. So it's not like, it's not unreasonable, and then that we're going to finish the business at 2 p.m. Friday because they are acknowledging you have to travel every weekend and you're supposed to go home. You, Jill's right. You are supposed to go home. You're not supposed to stay. You don't have to stay in Washington the whole time. Some, by the way, do stay in Washington right. the whole time or a lot of the time. Dennis Hassard does, with, and he lives with a lot of his male uh, staff uh, 
He does. It, they have a little cute little apartment together, and, and they bunker in there, and they think of, whoa, what more laws can we pass for the lobbyists? So, um, uh, the, uh, uh, so uh, again, so Steny Hoyer That's says... a little unfair, but only a little. ...says members can bid farewell to extended holidays, the kind that awarded them, as I said, six weekdays to relax around Memorial Day, when most Americans get a single day off. He didn't mention the month-long August recess, the two-week April recess, and the weeks off in February, March, and July, or the, the end-of-the-term recess that we're having... Uh, uh, right now, he said members need to spend more time in the Capitol to pass laws and oversee federal agencies. That's outrageous. <laughs> uh, we're going to meet sufficient time so the committees can do their jobs on the behalf of the American people, said Steny Hoyer. It seems obviously uh, uh, incredibly reasonable. Obviously, people are living in the West Coast uh, are going to have a slightly tougher time. Here's what Jack Kingston of Georgia said, who can fly from D.C. back and forth from Atlanta it's a two-hour flight, and there are eight billion of them a day. It's Jack at most a two-hour flight. And before, by the way, this story would have been good without the Jack Kingston quote. Right, it's already Jack, good. Yeah, but the Jack Kingston quote, oh, it's, it puts it over the top. Here's Jack Kingston of uh, Georgia. Keeping us up here eats away at families. Uh-oh. <laughs> who typically flies home on Thursdays and returns to Washington on Tuesdays. So keeping us up here eats away at families. Marriages suffer. The Democrats could care less about families. That's what this says. He, he says the Democrats are anti-family. <laughs> you know what? Does Jack Kingston have any idea how real people live? He must think that the corporations are the most anti-family people in the whole wide world. I mean, they demand a five-day work week. Yeah. Sometimes they make you work overtime. Oh, Cows, they are so anti-family. But it's not Shouldn't the corporations same. only require a two-day work week, Jack Kingston? It's, it's not the same kind of work week because you're away from your family. Oh, see, it's so not like when I, when you, or when my father went to work every day that he flew to another city and was gone for four or five days, and then came home on the weekends and I could see him then. He would come home at night, so I could see him at night. I know, and you know what? There are no working families out there, no truckers, no salesmen, no uh, executives, no anybody that has to fly around the country. Uh, but if they do, though, I know that their corporations, their companies say, hey, listen. Uh, you're working hard, I and I don't want to be anti-family, because that's what the Republicans say. Right. So you can only work two weeks yeah. this week. But at week. least those other companies give their employers like 24 weeks out of the air off. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jake, you mentioned uh, uh, truckers and uh, salesmen. Uh, who else? Uh, what about doctors? How about this? Business executives, too. Uh, doctors are away from home all the time. Soldiers. So oh, uh, no, wait a minute, no, but the Republicans wouldn't be no. anti-family by sending soldiers no. to Iraq no. for years at a time. That's no. Good, ben. Do you, poor Jack Kingston has to work three days a week instead of two days a week. Oh, I know the Democrats are anti-family. Do you think a Marine in the Anbar province gets to say, "I've worked five straight days. I'm entitled to two off." <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't know how it works. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work like that. Do you think a Marine says, hey, it's the month of August? I'd like to take the month of August I'd off like because I'm pro-family. I'd like my summer recess. It's my marriage is suffering. And it's April, and for no apparent reason, I would like two more weeks off because I'm pro-family. I'm Republican. Keeping us up here eats away at families. Marriages suffer. The Democrats could care less about families. That's what this says. Then Kingston adds... Time away from Washington is just as important to being an effective member of Congress as time spent in the Capitol. Kingston added, when I'm here, people call me Mr. Congressman. When I'm home, people call me Jack, you stupid SOB. Why did you vote that way? It keeps me grounded. Well, they were half right. You are a stupid SOB, but you are not grounded in any way, shape, or form. Hey, I got an idea for Jack Kingston. Resign. You can spend as much time at home as you want. You can get a good job. You've been in Congress. You'll make six figures easily down there uh, in whatever your district is in uh, in Georgia. And no, you won't. You'll be a lobbyist in D.C., and you'll stay there five goddamn days a, day, a week, and you'll work your ass off because they're going to pay you a lot of money. That's what you're going to do, and you're going to move your family to D.C. when you retire. Let's get real. Of course. A responsible Congress would meet like 150, 160 days a year, leaving poor guys like Jack Kingston only like 200 days to be home a year.
<laughs> Look, you stupid SOB. <laughs> Here's Representative Elton Gallagly. He's from uh, Republican of Cal uh, California. He says, if we do something truly productive, that's one thing. But if it smokes and mirrors hoopla, that's another. A, a four-day work week, which, by the way, most people, I, these guys are so out of touch. They have no idea what real Americans do. Four-day work week, apparently, smokes and mirrors hoopla and all that stuff. Hoopla. See, what I love about the quotes is it shows how Republicans have no idea what happens in our lives. They think, oh, wow, we were already putting, two, you know, two half days and a full day in, and, boy, we were working our ass off. And so anything more than that is against the family. Then what do you think we're all doing, man, when we all work 40, yeah. 60, 80 hours a week? Yeah, and, and, you know, that's exactly right. And, and I think the two days, the sign of it is, is it shows you how little debate there was. How little discussion of issues. I mean, if there is real, there's nothing that makes it clear that the that the moniker rubber stamp Congress got it exactly right. Because if you're just going to rubber stamp everything, then you're right. You probably that the the coming come in Wednesday. You know, we can get all that stuff done in an hour if you're just going to. If you don't even read the bills and you don't have, you don't let anybody debate them, you're right. Here's a quote, and this is this is why you want to be a Democrat uh, instead of uh, in the party of Jack Kingston. Uh, you know, Elton Gallagher's quote was bad, but Kingston takes the cake. Uh, Mike Thompson is a representative from California. He's from Napa. Napa Valley, Northern California. I don't know where in Napa he is. It probably takes him a while to get to a, a real airport. He can't fly direct. He's probably going, taking a small plane to San Francisco and then a, or Oakland and then taking a big plane, uh, on into Washington. He'll have to leave his home at 3 a.m. on Sundays just to catch a flight to Washington to get to work by Monday evening. And he says, I didn't come here to turn around and go back home. He came here to legislate and to try to pass laws that's going to help you. Yeah. And that's what they're all supposed to do. I love that Jack yeah, Kingston gave that long, quote. Long overdue. I love that Jack Kingston gave that quote because it gives you a real uh, view into how Republicans actually think. They don't want to do any other work. And they think that all you people working 40 hours a week or more are suckers. Anti-family. Hey, man, you don't want to be here. Go. Go, go, go. You can resign. It's no problem. They'll have a special election to fill your seat. said it. You'll be able to sunbathe at the Capitol in January before Democrats regain any power there. Today's high temperature in the district, 61 degrees and very sunny. And in our fifth story on the countdown, especially sunny for the Democrats. Two of the men of the hour will join us here. The new chairman of the House Appropriations Subcommittee, Jack Murtha, in a moment with his answer to the president's proposed surge and accelerate option in Iraq. The president confirms tonight whatever that plan is, he will unveil it sometime next week. And the new chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Jay Rockefeller, on the hunt to find truth about how we were misled into the war in Iraq. But first, the story of the woman of the hour, California Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi making this day in Washington historic on multiple fronts by collecting enough votes to become the first woman speaker of the House of Representatives, second in the line of succession to the presidency, business unusual at her swearing in Madam Speaker, inviting not just her six grandchildren, but every child in the chamber to join her on the podium, and accepting the gavel, Mrs. Pelosi recognizing the anti-war mandate that brought her to power and the women's movement that brought her to politics. It is a moment for which we have waited over 200 years. <laughs> Never losing faith, we waited through the many years of struggle to achieve our rights. But women weren't just waiting, women were working. Never losing faith, we worked to redeem the promise of America that all men and women 
are created equal. The American people rejected an open-ended obligation to a war without end. Shortly, President Bush will address the nation on the subject of Iraq. It is the responsibility of the President to articulate a new plan for Iraq that makes it clear to the Iraqis that they must defend their own streets and their own security. A plan that makes, promotes stability in the region and a plan that allows us to responsibly redeploy our troops. I am joined now from the Capitol by the chairman of the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense, Congressman John Murtha of Pennsylvania. Congressman, great thanks for your time tonight. Keith, happy new year to you. Glad to be here. Uh, many would subscribe to the argument that the Democratic takeover of Congress today would not have been possible without you if, if you as a former highly decorated Marine had not had the courage to speak out against the war in Iraq at a time when that was still a very dicey thing to do so. Now that the President is preparing to announce a plan that would escalate the number of troops in Iraq in some way or fashion, might you be planning to turn off the spigot to use appropriations oversight to use funding to stop him? Yeah. One, one of the problems that we've had in the last a couple years is the leadership on the Republican side wouldn't allow the Defense Subcommittee to do the appropriate oversight that was necessary. Now, we're going to have hearings as soon as they send over the supplemental, and we're going to look into detail about the requests that they're making. Uh, we have some real problems. Uh, something I mentioned over a year ago, we have the, the units in the United States are not ready uh, as a strategic reserve. And if something happened in Iran, something happened in North Korea or China, we wouldn't be able to react to that or sustain a deployment. So, so we we need to, to get some substantive information that allows us to take the kind of action that many people are advocating. We can't do it because we just haven't had the hearings that are necessary. Now, I'm talking about hearings, substantive hearings on the on the uh, the supplemental itself, meaning the $99.7 billion that they've requested. We've never really looked into it, how they're going to spend the money and so forth. Then we're looking at the possibility, can we limit the, the number of deployments of the troops? Can, can we say to the to the uh, uh, White House, look, you can't deploy troops to Iraq until you get these troops in the United States back to where we have a strategic reserve. But but the other thing that has to be done, Keith, and this is the thing that's so frustrating, mm -hmm. this president needs to consult with the Congress, the, the substantive consultant. In other words, he needs to talk to the people who have responsibility for foreign operations, for defense, and the leadership, and, and tell them what his plan is, and then ask for recommendation. President Bush one did it, President Clinton did it. President Reagan did it. This president does not consult. He, he has a few people there and tells him what he wants to do. He, gets a, he answers a few questions, and that's the end of the consultation. That's not what I consider consultation. So I'm hopeful that we'll have some consultation before he makes this decision. So you stop the blank check and you remind the president that there, there are two other branches of government or one legislative branch of government that he needs to talk to. You talk to the generals all the time. Uh, are they saying they want more troops at this stage of the conflict? And, and if they say otherwise, why would the president be sending them when he always says that he listens to the generals on the ground? Well, this is really another frustrating part of it. For a long time, I was speaking for the generals and nobody believed it. Now they're beginning to see the generals are speaking out against uh, what they consider a surge because they have to extend the people that are overseas or they have to redeploy people who have not been in, in home for less or more than a year. So so we're, we're caught in a very difficult situation because of the su sustainability of our troops and because of the readiness of the, of the reserves at home. And a National Guard and Reserve have been used completely. So we need to get this whole thing together. Now, uh, I would hope this president doesn't go forward. The public has spoken very clearly. They want our troops out of there. And we need to give the Iraqis the incentive to, to get our troops home, and we don't do it by making speeches about victory. Victory is, is not a, a, it's just a goal. It's not an achievable mission. And, and the true, even the troops themselves, Keith, have, have said mm -hmm. they don't support what the president's doing the way he's running the war. So we, we, can't, we can't afford to allow this to go forward. We have to find ways to convince this president that he can't afford to redeploy more troops uh, into Iraq. We've got to start the troops coming home, let the Iraqis take over. 
But you know what happens to people who disagree with this president. Do you think that this is now happening within the military, that, that uh, the, the recent news regarding General Casey, that he might be the first of a series of casualties uh, in a figurative sense of the military leadership that might be opposed to escalation plans from the president? Well, I, I'm not sure that Casey or Abizé, who are two fine uh, generals, are, are, that's the result. But, but they, this has happened in the past. Uh, if, if a general disagrees with the Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, he was he was ostracized. He, he was put out to pasture. Uh, this is the kind of thing. You, you need military expertise, professionalism, and they need to give advice. And if they can give advice and, and they're going to be fired, then they're not going to give the kind of advice they need. So this president has ignored uh, the military. It's now ignored the allies. And, and now he's ignoring election results. And the public is saying, we cannot afford the casualties. We cannot afford the cost. Eight billion dollars a month, Keith. We're, we're spending two billion dollars a month on logistics alone. So even a plan that, that starts to redeploy troops is going to cost us uh, 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 five or six or seven billion dollars a month until we get our troops out of there. So we have to find a way to get our troops redeployed. And we're going to work on that for the next two or three months. The president can announce a surge, but he's not going to have the support of the American public. And unless he has some consultation with the, the authorities in Congress, he's not going to have that kind of support either. About support, a final question, Congressman. Do you think that the Democratic Party is united on this if uh, Senator Levin of Michigan said, as he did today, that he would conceivably listen to some surge if there were the appropriate kind of uh, conditions to it and guarantees that it would be temporary? Do you think you're going to have any trouble lining up as a, a position for the Democratic Party opposed to an escalation of the war in Iraq? Keith, I, I think uh, all of us are willing to listen to uh, a plan that has an achievable mission for the military. Uh, so far, I have never seen. When I spoke out a year ago, I said that this cannot, there's no military victory possible. I still believe that. I have not seen a plan that came from the White House that was achievable. The military doesn't believe it, but now the troops on the ground don't believe it. So, so uh, I, I'd have to see a plan. I, I cannot believe they can come up with a plan after four years that's going to have, going to be achievable. But we're, in the next three, four months, we're going to look at every single request they make, and we're going to make it very hard for them to get the money unless they can they can prove that they need it to, for what's going on in Iraq. I believe that's how the government was intended to work. Congressman John Murtha, as of today, officially the new chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense. Great thanks for some of your time and your insight tonight. Nice to be here, Keith. Matthews turns to the Democrat and he says, you know, you've voted with Nancy Pelosi most of the time and you're in, you know, you're in favor of this, that and the other thing. Uh, doesn't that mean you're a liberal? And this guy looked like somebody had just, uh, you know, pick your lousy cliche, you know, uh, kicked him in the groin or stuck him with a cattle prod or whatever. I mean, he just, uh, and then he goes into this thing about, well, I take this position and that position. And, this and, and Matthews lets him spin the whole thing out. And when he's all done, Matthews says, so you're saying you're a liberal. And he says, no, you can't pigeonhole me that easily. George Washington called himself a liberal. I don't know what, you know, what these guys, somebody needs to find this piece of this clip from Jack Kennedy in 1960. Speaking before the liberal party in New York State about why he's a liberal, and, and have these guys memorize this. I mean, this is just so straightforward. What do our opponents mean when they apply to us the label liberal? If by liberal they mean, as they want people to believe, someone who is soft in his policies abroad, who is against local government, and who is unconcerned with a taxpayer's dollar, then the record of this party and its members demonstrate that we are not that kind of liberal. 
But if by a liberal they mean someone who looks ahead and not behind, someone who welcomes new ideas without rigid reactions, someone who cares about the welfare of the people, their health, their housing, their schools, their jobs, their civil rights and their civil liberties, someone who believes that we can break through the stalemate and suspicions that grip us in our policies abroad, if that is what they mean by a liberal, then I'm proud to say that I'm a liberal. Then I'm proud to say that I'm a liberal. I mean, how long has it been? I'm proud to say I'm a liberal. And then Kennedy goes on to define the traditional liberal ideals of America. But first, I would like to say what I understand the word liberal to mean and explain in the process why I consider myself to be a liberal and what it means in the presidential election of 1960. In short, having set forth my views, I hope for all time two nights ago in Houston, on the proper relationship between church and state, I want to take this opportunity to set forth my views on the proper relationship between the state and the citizen. This is my political credo. And now, I believe in human dignity as the source of national purpose. And now he's, he's laying this out, right? The human dignity. This is the, what liberals believe in. In human liberty as the source of national action. And the human heart as the source of national compassion. And in the human mind as the source of our invention and our ideas. It is, I believe, this faith in our fellow citizens, as individuals and as people, that lies at the heart of the liberal faith. See, and Kennedy has so nailed this thing at this point, because if you go back and you look at the, at the historic debate between conservatives and liberals, what you find, and I, I'm, I'm talking all the way back to the, to, to the 17th, 16th, 1600s and the 1700s, the, the 17th and 18th centuries, what you find is that the, 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 the classic conservatives like Malthus and, and, and Hobbes and, and Sir Edmund Burke fundamentally believed that human nature is evil and that government has to have great power and be a restraining force or religion has to have great power and be a restraining force to restrain the evil impulses of humans. Otherwise, as Hobbes pointed out in Leviathan, without the, without the iron grip of a powerful government or church that human nature would cause our society to revert back to, the, to its primitive state and life would once again become nasty, brutish, and short. Whereas the liberals of the Enlightenment, John Locke, John Jacques Rousseau, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, James Madison, they believed that humanity was fundamentally good. And yes, there are some evil people among us. We want to isolate them from us. You can put them in prison or try to rehabilitate them. There are some people who are truly... But the fundamental nature of humans is to be good. And therefore, the purpose of society is to advance life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not to restrain evil and go after evildoers. You get it? I mean, once you understand this is the fundamental cleavage between the, wor the worldview of conservatives and liberals, then you get the difference between the way that George Bush views the world and how Americans have historically viewed the world. Kennedy continues. For liberalism is not so much a party creed or a set of fixed platform promises as it is an attitude of mind and heart, a faith in man's ability through the experiences of his reason and judgment to increase for himself and his fellow men the amount of justice and freedom and brotherhood which all human life deserves. Okay, there, there it is. We need to reach out to Democrats in the United States and say, hey, liberal is okay. Liberal is what this country is founded on. Our founders were liberal. Liberal is the ideal. Forget about what Rush Limbaugh has said. Forget about the conservatives running around brandishing this word like it's a weapon. We can take it back.
Washington, the framers of the United States Constitution, seeing the wisdom in establishing three separate equal branches of government. President Bush, it would seem, having more Orwellian a view of the subject. Perhaps that all branches of government are equal, but some branches of government are more equal than others. Our fifth story in the countdown, the president today putting the partisan in bipartisan, telling Democrats in Congress, in effect, that he is still in charge and that his definition of bipartisanship is doing what he tells them to. This from the man who said in the days before the election that a vote for the Democrats would be a vote for the terrorists. In essence, vote against me and you will die. After four years of a war in Iraq that is consuming more than $1.4 billion a week and soon will almost certainly escalate. After six years of having allowed both the budget deficit and the national debt to soar, in those six same years, never once having vetoed a single pork-laden bill from Congress, Mr. Bush deciding on the eve of the Democratic Congress that pork is a problem. Preaching fiscal responsibility this morning in the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal. His groundbreaking ideas making previously passed tax cuts permanent, balancing the budget within five years, and giving him the line item veto he has long wanted to cut individual programs out of spending bills. The only line best not paraphrased in the editorial, the very last one. The journal reminding viewers that Mr. Bush is the President of the United States. This morning, the author rehashed his words from a podium in the White House Rose Garden. One important message we all should take from the elections is that people want to end the secretive process by which Washington insiders are able to get billions of dollars directed to projects, many of them pork barrel projects that have never been reviewed or voted on by the Congress. To help rein in wasteful spending and restore fiscal discipline in Washington, I call on Congress to give the president the tool that 43 governors have a line-item veto. At the White House news briefing this afternoon, one reporter questioning Press Secretary Tony Snow on why one branch of government would get to tell another branch of government what to do. The president has issued hundreds of signing statements where he's told Congress basically, don't butt in and tell me how the executive branch should run its business. Why is it then appropriate for him now to tell Congress how it should be running its own processes? No, wait a minute. Would, would... Peter, what he said is that there are some times that he believes that the implementation language does not meet constitutional muster. And rather than getting into Congress's business, those signing statements have been looking for constitutional ways to fulfill the will of Congress and get them done effectively. If memory doesn't fail me, every president, Democratic or Republican, has had something to say about the way in which Congress handles spending, and that is a normal part of American politics. The process, they should have disclosure, they should do this, yeah. they should not do it in the middle of the night. Isn't that telling them how they should have their process in a way that the president is resisting? No, I, I believe his prerogatives no. to run the executive branch? No, I don't think so. Uh, members of Congress are already talking about doing this, Peter. Because the president is somebody who, the president has a unique role, which is he is the chief executive of the United States. The president has a fiduciary responsibility to the American people, because ultimately, it's not Congress that spends the money. It's agencies that are under the purview of the president of the United States. That's why they call it the executive agency. He executes the laws, ex uh, executive branch. He executes the laws that Congress has passed. Time now to call in our own Howard Feynman, senior Washington correspondent, of course, for Newsweek magazine. Howard, good evening. Good evening, Keith. I'm missing something in the president's piece in the Wall Street <laughs> Journal about bipartisanship. Where is the, what do you call it, bipartisanship? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think he's making it clear uh, that he's got his priorities and he would like the, this new Democratic Congress to follow them. And uh, I really think while tomorrow is going to be a day filled with pomp and circumstance on the Hill and this morning in the Rose Garden, you saw more of the same with the cabinet members lined up. The next 48 hours are about all, are about all the good era of good feeling that we're going to have here in the next couple of years. When did uh, the president's uh, stated or written zeal for congressional transparency start? Was it no <laughs> November 8th, uh, 2006, by any chance? Well, I've got to say I love the idea of the White House suddenly being in love with transparency. Uh, the big argument around here for the last few years has been about the White House not coming forth with explanations about what they're doing, why they're doing it, why they're spending the money the way they are that's been appropriated in huge chunks uh, by the Congress, especially for the war in Iraq. So the president obviously wants to try to uh, get the high ground here on the issue of spending because it's now the Democrats who are making those decisions. And the Democrats have a lot of things they want to do uh, to, to affect that over the next couple of years.
And if you're wondering, by the way, the only American president who had a line item veto, uh, veto was uh, Jefferson Davis. Uh, <laughs> and to the point of this, and that's serious, could, yeah. could the, uh, the earmarks, this, this uh, sudden anger at earmarks, could the, could the surge in Iraq be viewed as the president's own personal earmark? How can, can he even talk about balancing a budget without taking into account these extraordinary costs of that war in Iraq? Well, the earmarks, which are special set-asides and bills for individual projects, that's a congressional thing, and there's a lot of political power in them, and they, they win votes. I must say right now for the president, uh, paying for a surge in Iraq is not a way to win political support here at home. I think it's going to be very controversial and probably very unpopular. I think what the president is doing is pursuing what I, and I'm told and what I sense is his strategy for the next couple of years, which is to keep on keeping on uh, by the lights that he set for himself going back several years ago on Iraq, let the Democrats, after or whomever succeeds him after 2009, be the ones to really do the massive pullout in Iraq. George W. Bush is not going to do it, and the surge is a way for him to buy time to finish the policy as he sees it through. All right, we have three uh, sets of terminologies that have been applied to this speech that's supposed to uh, reveal the surge or whatever it is, the additional 20,000 troops. It's an escalation, no matter what you want to call it. We have surge and uh, accelerate. We have sacrifice. We have uh, the theme for the speech being sacrifice or the theme for the speech being victory. What, what, uh, what are you hearing about what this speech is going to be, what the results are going to be, and what, this, what the theme is going to be? Well, I think it's going to be the middle of the three that you mentioned. The president's not going to talk a whole lot about victory in any grand term because the American people won't buy it. Uh, he's going to talk about sacrifice, but the question here is, who's doing the sacrificing? Now, for sure, we're spending a ton of money there. I think it's going to be a half a trillion dollars within another six months to a year, generously estimated in Iraq and in attendant costs. But in terms of the broad mass of the American people, the people who are fighting and dying and being wounded and maimed beyond recognition are a fairly small slice of the American people. Were there a draft right now, uh, this city and this country would be torn apart even more than it is, and I think upside down, really, at this point. So the sacrifice is not broadly shared, except to a degree by taxpayers, and I must say, by the next generation of all Americans, who are going to have to be paying both the interest and the principal on the debt we're piling up for them. producing a society so abundant and creative and so free and responsible that it can not only fulfill the aspirations of its citizens, but serve equally well as a beacon for all mankind. I do not believe in a super state. I see no magic to tax dollars which are sent to Washington and then returned. I abhor the waste and incompetence of large-scale federal bureaucracies in this administration as well as in others, I do not favor state compulsion when voluntary individual effort can do the job and do it well. But I believe in a government which acts, which exercises its full powers and its full responsibilities. Government is an arm and a precious obligation. And a precious obligation. So he's you know, saying basically we're all in favor of being responsible. That's liberal. And this is the, all the same speech, by the way. Continue, this is contiguous. It's about being responsible, and it's also about being proactive in a positive way because we have this positive worldview and this belief in the potential for humanity and, and human beings. And when it has a job to do, I believe it should do it. 
And this requires and this requires not only great ends, but that we propose concrete means of achieving them. And this is where we come back to our ideals, to our vision as a liberal nation. Our responsibility is not discharged by an announcement of virtuous ends. Our responsibility is to achieve these objectives with social invention, with political skill, and executive vigor. I believe for these reasons that liberalism is our best and our only hope in the world today. Liberalism is our best and only hope in the world today. Where is a politician who will say this? Liberal society is a free society. And it is at the same time, and for that reason, a strong society. Its strength is drawn from the will of free people committed to great ends and peacefully striving to meet them. Only liberalism, in short, can repair our national power restore our national purpose, and liberate our national energies. And the only basic issue in the 1960 presidential campaign is whether our government will fall in a conservative rut and die there, or whether we will move ahead in the liberal spirit of daring, of breaking new ground, of doing in our generation what Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and Adlai Stevenson did in their time of influence and responsibility. There you go. John Kennedy speaking about why he is proud to be a liberal and what it means to be a liberal, the, his, the historic perspective of America. And a baseball cap holding down her black hair and she came here after midnight First of all, I would like to say, do you feel it, Jill? Do I feel what? Well, it's very windy. It's very windy and cold here in Los yeah. Angeles, Jack. Yeah. And I sense it's because America's foundation is off its kilter, as Dennis Prager predicted. Exactly. Because Keith Ellison used the Quran uh, to, for the photo op when he was sworn in in Congress. He said essentially it would, you know, send a terrible signal and embolden terrorists and essentially weaken America's foundation. And you know, I, you know what I, this first, wind is? Well, just let me say, at first I didn't think he was right. Oh. But I do now. The wind I, is actually Satan. Yeah. Satan blowing I, through the United States. I feel like America is off kilter because of that. Yeah, I feel it here too. Uh, yeah. Is New York I, falling I'm shaking to well? my core. Jenk <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, began the program by refer the segment. He was on for three segments, and you began by referring to Dennis Prager as a clown. Yeah, I uh, t- did all I could to resist my temptation to call him an ass clown. I think that was why. <laughs> And I just went with clown instead. Can you remind so, me? Dennis Prager just did something that that we. Uh... Well, this is uh, the Keith Ellison thing. Oh right. Uh, and of course, Keith Ellison, a historic day in America. Keith Ellison, uh, the first uh, Muslim uh, member of the United States Congress, and Nancy Pelosi, the first, uh, well, the second Muslim member of Congress. Nancy, Pel- I didn't know Nancy Pelosi was a Muslim. <laughs> that is. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, no, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the first uh, woman uh, speaker of the United States uh, House of Representatives. Uh, I don't, Armageddon is on its way. Uh, I don't think we made a big enough deal about that yesterday, and I kind of wanted to address that. And, you know, I guess partly because I've grown up in, in a context where I thought, well, women being in charge or, you know, diversity, all these things are incredibly normal to me. Uh, but unfortunately, they have not been incredibly normal to the country for a long, long time. And I, I almost like when people said Nancy Pelosi was going to be the first female Speaker of the House, it, in my mind, it almost wasn't even true. I was like, well, that can't be true. How could that be true? I'm sure there must have been other female speakers before. But, you know, as it began to sink in yesterday, I realized, you know, 
it is a really historic moment for America, though in my mind perhaps it shouldn't be. Perhaps we should have gotten to this moment a long, long time ago. I mean, remember, Pakistan had a female president decades ago. Mm-hmm. And so did Turkey, and so did many other Muslim countries. And so it's kind of, it's almost a little embarrassing that we're celebrating the first female Speaker of the House at this point, but we are. So that is that is a great step, Democrat or Republican. Uh, first of all, I don't mean this as a criticism. I, I think it's actually praise uh, for you, uh, uh, Jack, is that you frequently don't, understand stuff like that that's terribly said that's definitely a criticism that's not <laughs> no no, you, no 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 i know what you're saying like, I understand. like like even with the harold ford racism stuff and and in the south it, because your thought is what are you talking about who would possibly still be racist mm-hmm. how could a woman not be speaker of the house this is ridiculous why are we having this conversation it, it's it, it's actually it's sort of uh it's it's it, it's admirable and i think that it could only be uh i, I think a rare combination of 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 sort of coming uh, being come being an immigrant uh, surrounded by immigrants and growing up in New Jersey around every other race and uh, where it's just sort of the idea that that anyone would think lesser of anybody because of their sex or their sexual orientation or their race you're like what are you insane this is america we don't do that here. Hey, Jay. This is Chris the Carpenter from the Lifted Lorax Show. Uh, My wife and I uh, do a little podcast from beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And uh, we get a call from one of our uh, phenomenal listeners, the the third member of our show, Parker. And, uh, well, he left us just a phenomenal message. So I am passing it on to you, and I'm passing it on to your listeners. So... As always, um, from myself and my wife Carrie from the Lifted Lorac Show, we uh, we thank you very, very much for what you do. Love your show. Have a good night, and here is Parker. Hi, Chris and Carrie. I wanted to. Um, I had this pretty cool thing happen. I submitted a clip to the Best of the Left podcast. It's a community-supported podcast now. What I did was uh, I listened to a show, and uh, it was uh, real-time with Bill Maher, and I heard a section I thought was really good. So I looked, and I noted. I wrote down what time it started and what time it stopped, and then I posted it on this website, which is botlcommunity.com, and... I put what it was about, which was, I called it Republican Talking Points Destroyed. And later on, uh, someone else on the website went and clipped it out. And then later on, it appeared on the Best of the Left podcast on uh, November 26th. So I was really excited to see that. And I don't know if you all knew this, but... Anybody can get on there and submit clips from uh, left-leaning radio shows and help out that show. That show started out with one guy uh, named uh, Jay, and he did everything. He had some kind of job where he could listen to a lot of radio shows, and he would do this, like, every day. And uh, got burned out eventually, uh, and he asked for... Help. So now it's the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, and I really enjoy that podcast. So there's what I got for you. Bye.